Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning services to you each and every week. We are currently in our sermon series, Stories of Christmas. In this series, we are walking through Luke 2 and the stories of different people who played a role in the Christmas story. From Mary and Joseph to the shepherds and the Magi, each of these stories will culminate in the birth of Jesus. So join us as we share the stories of Christmas. All right, good morning. good morning and Merry Christmas. I'm really glad that you're here today. Um, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, um, whether it's an analog Bible and you're going to be flipping pages or you're pulling it up on a digital device, um, go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 1 with me. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, although I'm going to start with and end with the book of Luke, and we're going to navigate this start of the Advent season together. Now, when I was growing up, um, Advent was a little tiny cardboard box that had 25 cutouts in it, and every single day our mother would let us punch out, my sister and I would take turns, punching out the little hole that would reveal, let's just be honest, what wasn't, like, it was really a low-quality, low-grade piece of chocolate, but kids didn't care, because the purpose of the punching out the hole wasn't that you got to eat the piece of chocolate that was inside. The purpose of punching out the hole was that you were counting down to Christmas, and I remember really distinctly being a kid that rounded out Thanksgiving, thinking to myself, we still have a whole month to wait for Christmas. And to be fair, that Advent wasn't talking about the coming of Jesus. It was talking about the coming of Santa Claus. And we thought it was an eternity between turkey and presents. Like, it took forever. Now, I'm pretty much of the ripe old age of blah, 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 and I'm looking at Thanksgiving going, well, y'all coming to the Christmas Eve service tomorrow because it's gonna fly by. This Sunday is the first Sunday of what in the church calendar we call Advent. Uh, And each one of the Sundays leading up to Christmas is a moment where we celebrate a specific word that Christ brought into the world and into our lives. And this is the Sunday of hope. And and so we look at this passage and we look at these characters and we look at this narrative with the expectation that God is going to provide for us hope to a point of our personal need and a point of worldwide need where we need to be a people who get to have it. So we look at these stories and we're like, okay, it's like, why Christmas? Why these characters? Why these stories? Why these traditions? And I'll just go ahead and encourage you to do like we do every single year. Take an audit of your lives. Like take an audit, like not, of, like not a financial one. That will come in January and we'll finish it up on April 15th and that'll be a big deal. No, no, no. Take a personal audit of the way that you celebrate Christmas. 
the punch-out traditions and the things that you do annually every single year, how many things that are on your list of to-dos, how many things are on your list of traditions, how many things are on your list of expectations that literally point you to the heart of God and the giving of his son Jesus, and how many of those things are just culturally relevant things that actually serve to distract you from the manger? Because we all have them. People that are spending so much time and effort and energy and emphasis on things that don't point us to Jesus, but actually distract us and make it cloudy and difficult to see him. If you start with the book of Luke, you recognize that this fella was writing to us, not one, but two books of the Bible that are very important to the New Testament narrative, the book of Luke, the gospel that he writes, but then also the book of Acts. Widely accepted scholarship tells us that Luke might have been a Gentile. Somebody that wasn't even Jewish, and I think that's fantastic to look at our Christian narrative that we've been given. We've got an author that was a Gentile just like us. Some assume that he wasn't a Gentile, but he was actually a kid that was born Jewish, but was more Hellenized, which, that doesn't sound bad, it's Greek, that was actually living out all of the cultural expectations of the Greek rule of the day and ignoring his Jewish heritage and roots. What it means is that he would have been a person that was steeped in all of the prophecy, steeped in all of the traditions, steeped in all of the expectations of the coming of Jesus. And they didn't wait 25 days from Thanksgiving to Christmas. They waited hundreds and thousands of years for God to fulfill the promise of the Messiah that he would send. They had been waiting for a long time. And if he was, in fact a Hellenized Jew, he would have understood all of the prophecy and all of the expectation, but not been paying attention to any of it. And we look at ourselves over Christmas. Last week, Kelly Mentor did a fantastic job teaching at all of our campuses via live stream, talking about the character of Mary in the story. And she tells this story of how she was growing up listening to Christmas songs on the radio and hearing Frank Sinatra and Neil Diamond and probably other popular singers sing Christmas carols that proclaimed the goodness of God, like the ones that we just sang. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant to worship Christ the King. She says in the back of the car, Mom, I didn't know Neil Diamond was a Christian. And she's like, well, Kelly, I mean, these are just songs that people sing. And she had no category for people who would sing the words but not mean them. And yet we know all too well that there's a whole lot of people, sometimes including us, who know the words, who know the stories, who know the characters, but are too busy doing other things to focus on how very good they are. So we read in the book of Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. That word's really important. We're going to go back to that word fulfilled again this morning among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke wasn't around when Jesus was parting waters, walking on water, like doing all the cool things that he was doing, helping Peter walk. He wasn't around watching Jesus multiply loaves and fishes. He was with the apostles as they were taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world and Asia Minor throughout the book of Acts, hearing the stories of the disciples and the first eyewitness accounts. And here he is talking about what those things said. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, he's a doctor, a physician, super detail-oriented, investigating everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. I was at a Christian school this week teaching in their chapel, and I gave the kids a quiz, like from elementary school on up, like a quiz of all the Christmas characters, and asked them like who the angel Gabriel was, and who mother of Jesus was, and who the father of earthly father of Jesus was, and who were the first visitors to baby Jesus. And then I asked them who the book of Luke was written to, and nobody knew the word Theophilus. Maybe you guys didn't know the word Theophilus either. But this is what Luke says. He's like, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. 
We don't want to be a people who sing Christmas carols. We don't want to be a people who know Christmas stories. We want to be a people who believe Christmas stories. We want to be a people who live Christmas stories. We want to be a people who have certainty in the Christmas story. It's not just some legend or narrative that we've been told. It's the truth of our lives and what we dedicate our hearts to. Luke wrote down the things that he wrote down, included the details that he included, so that Theophilus and so that all of us might have certainty in the stuff that we've been taught. This season, and maybe every season, but this season specifically and these stories, the ones that we're talking about every single Sunday morning, the ones that our kids are learning about upstairs and down the hall, those stories are aimed at our certainty that you and I might be a people of convicted belief who know that the story is real and who know that the gospel that Jesus gives to us is real. Do you have that kind of certainty? Like, are you that sure of the Christmas story? Is it just words that you know and that you sing? Are these just stories that we tell and retell? Or are they core and essential to who you are? Starting in the book of Matthew, we get a lot of those details It says in Matthew chapter 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and every single one of these names that we often gloss over. The story of Christmas, the story of the nativity, didn't begin with a baby. It began with a wedding and a couple that was prepping to be married. It says about their history, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And you'll notice throughout this history, unlike other Jewish lineages that always trace their paternity through the father, always trace their genealogy, always trace their heritage through the men, that this one includes five ladies. We'll find out really quickly that it's not just five Jewish ladies because four of them weren't Jewish at all. Like the narrative story of how we get to Jesus includes Gentiles and includes a promise. It says, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. The first two women in this narrative, Tamar and Rahab, Canaanite women. It says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. She was a Moabite girl. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, who we read a ton about in the Old Testament. Every single one of these characters has a story and a narrative and a place in the Old Testament canon to remind us about the goodness of God. Their stories matter. It says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba was a Hittite. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerom, Jerom, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon, a point in Israel's history that we just came off the heels of talking about throughout our studies of Ezra and Nehemiah a point that mattered in their history. And I don't say these names because I've practiced pronouncing them. I say these names because they matter. The book of Exodus that we talk about, the exit of Egypt, the Hebrew name for that book, Shemot, literally means these are the names. The names matter. And the reason the names matter is because the names are attached to people whose stories matter. 
It says, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel, Shealtel the father of Zerubbabel. We just read about those two guys in Ezra and Nehemiah as we're talking about the return, the rebuilding of the temple, the, the rebuilding of the wall around the city and the important role that they played. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eli. Is anybody pregnant in here? Don't raise your hands. Like, I don't want to out anybody for like something. Like, you're probably getting ready to put that on Instagram. You don't have to raise your hand here. This is a really good list of baby names if you want it. I mean, your kid's not going to have three of them in your classroom, okay? <laughs> Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob, in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And then it says in verse 17 that thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. We served a very detail-oriented God. And every single one of these stories that's included, most of them are really difficult. Many of them are downright sinful. Many of them are really, really challenging. And we get this picture of their inclusion in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, and it matters to us. It matters to us that the Bible keeps the messy parts. Because it's an invitation for every single one of us to know and remember, we have messy parts too. We have difficult backgrounds. We have challenging stories. It's an invitation for us to bring it out front and center and to not be ashamed of the things that are difficult, but to bring them and lay them at the feet of God and to make them part of our Christ-centered community. You don't have to hide that stuff. We can all be the people who bring the crazy uncle out of the closet at Christmas time. Like, there is that moment when we're invited not to bring God our perfection, because we don't have it but to bring him ourselves, including all the messy parts. And if the genealogy of Jesus includes the backstories, and you can read about them in the Old Testament, the backstories of the people that it included, then we know that we can bring our messy parts too. We know that we can present ourselves to God knowing that he is gracious and just and good in every single part of it. We should remember that. We land on Joseph, and he's the key character for the day. And the first important thing that we note about Joseph wasn't what he did. In fact, we know from other parts of Scripture and other parts of Christian history that he's a carpenter. Some of us may understand that to be a stonemason. One works with wood, one works with rocks. Culturally, I don't really know what they were working with back then, but it was a whole lot of stuff. He made things, blue collar, with his hands. He wasn't a priest, he wasn't a Levite, he wasn't a community leader. He was a hard-working dude. But the first thing that we're invited to know about Joseph isn't what he did, but who he was and where he was from. That history, that culture, that story, it mattered. Scripture says relatively little about Joseph. We have to read between the lines to understand his story and why it's important. Where he's from and who he's from matters just as much as who he was and, and, and what he did. He was from Israel. And Israel in, in this time of Roman occupation was in utter turmoil. And you turn on the news or you look at your Instagram feed right now, you know that Israel today and really throughout all of history has often found itself in the middle of utter turmoil. I was listening to Christianity Today Bulletin this week. Mike Cosper, um, which my autocorrect automatically assumes is Cooper, but it's not. Um, he interviewed Dan Senor. Dan Senor is a co-author of a book called The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a divided nation in a turbulent world. And early in the book, he quotes this fellow named Sebastian Younger, who's a war correspondent and has seen a lot of really difficult things. He says this, humans don't mind hardship. 
<laughs> you're like, who? Who doesn't mind? I mind hardship. No, he says this. Humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society, and he's pointing at us in America. He, he's pointing at the West. He's pointing at developed world. He's pointing at people who have evolved past some of the conflicts that are going on in the Middle East. He's saying modern society has perfected the art of making people feel unnecessary. And in all of his studies of what's going on in Israel, culturally, from young people all the way to old, he doesn't find that. Unlike the West, they don't live itemized, compartmentalized, individualized lives where we have correspondingly high rates of loneliness, high rates of substance abuse, high rates of Deaths from despair related to suicide, a mental health crisis that's unparalleled anywhere else in the world, teen mental health crises. The CDC shows unprecedented reports of elevated teen suicide attempts and rates. We also have an overall population shrinkage. Um, Israel has broke what's known as the iron law that says as a country becomes more productive, it becomes less reproductive. Not so with Israel, because in the middle of all of their challenges, they're at a population boom because good God-fearing Orthodox Jews are having lots of kids and even secularized Jews are focusing on having lots of kids. And this is what they know. They know that their story matters in their own family and in their own community, but they know that the story of Israel matters to the world. It has a place in human history of literally biblical proportions. The story of what's happening in Israel matters, and the people who are there in in spite of the fact that they are all the time going through really, really difficult things, some by their own cause, like the stuff that they're going through, they still realize that they are necessary in their communities and in their families and in their lives and in the world. I want you to know you're necessary. You matter. Your story matters. The way that you live out your faith matters never be in a spot where you start to enter into that place where you think that who you are and where you come from and why you exist and all the parts of your story, even the messy parts of it, don't be in that spot where you feel like you're unnecessary, that you don't matter. Each character in this story matters. They're there so that you and I might have certainty of the goodness of God and his gift of Jesus. That's why Joseph's there. And if you continue in verse 18 in the book of Matthew, it says, this is how the birth, that's the word genealogy. It's where we get the word nativity from. Nativity isn't Jesus' story. Nativity just means birth story. You have a nativity. I have a nativity. Nobody has a ceramic version of my nativity in their house. They could, but they don't. Nobody has a ceramic version of a nativity, of your nativity in their house, but you have, an, you have a story, you have an origin, you have a people that you come from. That's what this one means. This is how the birth, the genealogy, the genesis, the origin, the nativity of Jesus, the Messiah, that means Christ, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came, okay, this, pledged to be married is different than our um, engagements today. Like, nobody was having a meet-cute, nobody was popping the question and posting pictures about it on Instagram. Like, it wasn't the same thing then, that, it, and that their engagement was a betrothal. It was a promise that they had probably known about since 
they were very, very little, that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. And during the engagement period or the betrothal period, it would be his responsibility as someone who was, for us, awkwardly older than her, that's okay, um, to go and prepare a place, probably build a home on his father's property, probably get his business and his life in order, save up some money so that they could pay a dowry in order for her family to let Mary go and be a part of his family. There was a lot of things that had to happen in order for them to get married, and she wouldn't know the wedding date. There would be no countdown on the not.com where she's going, oh, only six more weeks till we get married. She didn't know when it was. Jesus tells a story later on in the Gospels when he's teaching people about these ten virgins that have no idea when the bridegroom's going to come. She wouldn't have known when Joseph was going to be finished with the house, when Joseph was going to be finished getting himself ready to come and take her as his wife. She would have just been waiting and doing everything she could to prepare for the day when he might show up. So they're engaged to be married, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. It's important. It's important to know that he was a faithful guy. And yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, side note, we should always consider things before we make big decisions in life. That's what Joseph did. Like, think about it first. Like, don't just jump in. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, y'all, it matters that in this moment, When the angel of God addressed him, he reminded him who he was. You're part of the line of David. You come from a long history of people who were passionate about God, some of which made big, big mistakes, and some of which were faithful to the end. This is who you are and who you are a part of. Never forget who you are, Joseph. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill, man, that's an important word, fulfill. All of it took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, talking about Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. That word fulfill it's the word playru. Now, you say it with a southern accent, that's okay. Say playru. It means to make full, to, 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 to fill up, to render complete, to consummate. And that's certainly what wasn't happening in their case, but it definitely happened with the Holy Spirit. To make complete in every single particular detail. To carry into effect. And that's exactly what God was doing when he gave us Jesus. He was fulfilling, making complete, finishing up all of the promises that he had been making, not for 25 days since Thanksgiving, but for hundreds and thousands of years, telling a people that he was one day going to send a Messiah, telling his people that he was going to send them a Savior, giving them specifics about the person that it would be and the things that he would do and why he would have to come. This was a moment of fulfillment. Joseph kind of almost missed it. He had a right to end it all as soon as she was found to be pregnant because in a betrothal situation, just like marriage is today, for her to be found pregnant in that moment, not from Joseph, would have been considered adultery and ultimately by their law, it would have been punishable by death. Joseph would have been right. He would have been morally and legally and in this case, ethically right to divorce her to end the relationship, and even to press charges against her and her family. It would have been within his rights as a law-abiding Jew to dismiss her. But it was generous and kind for him to want to keep it quiet. 
I love these pictures of grace. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we deserve death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is within the right. It is right for God Almighty in our sin to dismiss us and to not be in relationship with us. But because of his grace, because of his gift, he chooses us anyway. I love this, this, this glimpse of what grace is in the scripture. Because wherever there is evidence of grace in this story, in this church, in our lives, in your relationships, wherever there is evidence of grace, there is certainty, there's confidence in our hope. Go back to verse 21. It says, she will, uh, it says, she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not only was Joseph going to be the father of a kid that wasn't legitimately his, but he was also invited to sacrifice his right to get to name the firstborn son. That would have been the right of the Jewish father to name his firstborn son after some family member of his name. And mercy, we could have had Jesus with some name like Zadok. That would have been crazy. We have no idea what Joseph would have picked. It was the right of the, the mother in the scenario to get to name one of the subsequent kids, a, a second son or a third son, after somebody in her family. But Joseph could have picked out the name. But the angel told him to name his son Jesus. Why? Because he was going to save his people from their sins. We get glimpse after glimpse after glimpse of grace and of hope being fulfilled. And then we get this detail. You know, Luke says every detail that he included, he included so that we might have certainty in what we've been taught, Matthew gives us this detail. He says, Joseph did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. I kind of have always wondered why that detail was in there. And perhaps it was to let us know that it wasn't just a virgin who conceived, but a virgin who delivered. But it seems, and I'm going to look down at the floor when I say this, because I like to look down and not make eye contact when I say awkward things. Um, <laughs> that thing... <laughs> that Joseph had already waited a long time for, he was apparently going to have to wait a lot more for. <laughs> if you laughed at that, um, we judge you now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was going to have to wait. A and we can, all the men in the room can be like, oh, what a sacrifice. He had to wait. Like, there, there could have been, but there was certainly, 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 read between the lines with me, a lot more that Joseph sacrificed, but also a lot more that he gained if you go to Luke and you end up in chapter 2, it's the most common reading of the Christmas story. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, and we're reminded again that they are part of a Roman-occupied world, and every single one of those details matter. Those details are to create certainty for us. It is a messy world, and it is a messy existence for the nation of Israel. They had celebrated 400 years previously that, oh, we get to occupy our city. Oh, we get to rebuild the wall. Oh, we have a temple again. But now Rome occupies the place where they are supposed to worship. In those days, Caesar Augustus, who's in charge of the known world at the time, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This detail is given to us that would create certainty in us. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. 
And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, that's where he lived in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. We're reminded again, based on the Old Testament prophecies that he fulfilled for us, that Joseph is part of the Davidic line. It matters to us where he came from in this moment. And Luke is connecting these details because Theophilus needs to know that the thing that he's been taught is real. And it matters. And we should focus on it. It's because of Joseph's family's need to be in Bethlehem that the birth of Jesus being prophesied in the Old Testament taking place in Bethlehem, that they would be there. I often find just as much joy in looking at who's not at the Christmas story than I do in celebrating who is. Where's Jacob? We just read about him in Matthew. It's Joseph's dad. Maybe he's already deceased at this point. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us that detail. Where's Mathen? That's the grandfather. He might already be deceased in this moment. Where's he? If those guys were alive, they'd be in Bethlehem too. Did Joseph have brothers and sisters? Well, we don't know because Scripture doesn't tell us if he was an only child or not. But we can look at history and we can understand archaeology and we can realize family structures that Joseph was probably not an only child. Well, maybe he didn't have any brothers. Maybe he was just one of many sisters like my son is. I mean, like, it's okay. We get it. Well, maybe those sisters had to go to the ancestral towns of their husbands, and that's why none of them were in Bethlehem. But chances are good, and we can make a safe assumption. Joseph had a brother. And if not a brother, a male cousin. Or if not a male cousin, a male second or third or fourth or whatever removed cousin. And those people should have been in Bethlehem, too. And you know when you're a kid and you're watching a nativity story in a cartoon or you know you're hearing about the nativity story told at Christmas, you're like, oh, there was no room for them at the end. And so you invent in your mind, and sometimes the cartoon has that fellow right there, the innkeeper. There's no innkeeper in the story. That's because Bethlehem was not 30A. <laughs> like it wasn't a booming metropolis of vacationers. Nobody was going to Bethlehem just because they wanted to go visit some really fun attraction. Like, it wasn't a tourist town. The only people reason we're in Bethlehem that week is because they related to the ancestral town of David and Caesar Augustus had required that they conduct a census. You weren't in Bethlehem looking for a hotel. Mary and Joseph weren't looking for a neon sign that said vacancy so that they could bed down for the night. They should have been staying with family. There should have been a cousin or an uncle or an aunt or a brother or a sister right there with them. And we read that word in Scripture, and it's only provided for us two times in the New Testament. Well, really three. Once here in the birth story of Jesus, that there was no room for them in the guest room. There was no place for them to stay. And then we get it twice, once in Mark and once in Luke, towards the end of the story, when Jesus and his disciples celebrated the final Passover Seder before his arrest, trial, conviction, and crucifixion. Where was it? An upper room. They weren't looking for a hotel. They were looking for an upstairs bedroom where she could stay the night and deliver her child. And we're not told whether or not Joseph had brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and all the things. But if he did, and chances are good, then the real brutality of the story is not that there was no room for them. The real brutality of the story is that their family had abandoned them. Guess what? It would have been within their right to forget the pregnant girl, to forget their own son, and to not be present for them in the moment where they needed them the most. 
Just because there's hope doesn't mean that it won't be hard. I think sometimes we forget that. I'll say it again. Just because there's hope doesn't mean that it won't be hard. To Joseph, verse 5, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and expecting a child while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. When the Bible says that there's no guest room available for them, that also meant that there was no family midwife there wiping her sweat and holding her hand and coaching her and telling her what to do next as she birthed the Christ child into the world. She should have had somebody there, but she did. It was Joseph, who in spite of what he was turning his back on, he was receiving something far, far greater, a place in this story. Next week, we'll talk about the shepherds, which means we're going to read Luke 2, 8 through 15. Um, but I want to preview the tail end of that story, and you know what it is. That's why you have ceramic versions of shepherds at your nativity sets. They, they came. They were the first to come and congratulate the couple and to celebrate the Christ. It says in verse 16, so they, talking about the shepherds, hurried off, and they found Mary, underline, and Joseph. He's a really important part of this story. He was there. Jacob wasn't. Mathen doesn't, wasn't. Grandma wasn't. Brothers weren't cousins weren't, aunts, uncles, family, midwife, none of the other people who would have been required to go to Bethlehem because they were in Joseph's family were present to celebrate the arrival of his son and to magnify the name that Joseph gave him. But Joseph was there. When the shepherds show up, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. We don't know if Joseph had a whole lot of family. We don't know if they were missing out on the Christmas story, but what we do know is that there are a lot of people who are missing out on the Christmas story. Maybe there have been moments in your life where you've missed out on the Christmas story and you were not present at the Christmas story, probably because of so many distractions in your life preventing you from seeing the Christmas story. And maybe you're somebody who sees and values and understands and knows the beauty of the story and you are part of the story, but you have people in your life who don't have certainty of the Christmas story, who don't have the hope that you have of the Christmas story, may this be a season where we give people that hope, where we show people that story, those characters, and why it matters. Joseph was there. We can be sure. But are you there? And are all the people that you have influence over, or all the people that you love, or all the people... Are they all there with you celebrating the birth of Jesus? Understanding and having certainty in why it happened, how it happened, and that he came. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place and to celebrate the good, gracious gift that you gave us in Jesus in spite of all of our mess, in all of our crazy stories, in all of our absent-minded holiday traditional distractions. You're inviting us to be a part of the story and to have certainty in the fact that you came and the reason you came. Father, I pray that these friends of mine
would be present at the manger, would have certainty in the story, and be, be offerings of that story and the hope that you've given us to others in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and to him alone that we celebrate today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you're subscribed and get notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.